0: Revelation chapter 21. And we're going to continue in our study. Lots to see here. I'm going to jump uh, right in. Stories told about Bill and Joe. Uh, Bill and Joe, good friends, best friends. Uh, these guys lived, lived in the same neighborhood, went to the same schools. Uh, they both shared a love of baseball, and they participated together in t ball, in little league, high school baseball. And when they went to junior college, they played on the baseball team there. Uh, they played in their church league. When they got older, they coached their kids' b- baseball teams. You get the you get the idea. Just they're baseball fanatics. And <clears throat> so the the end is drawing near for Joe. He's on his deathbed, and Bill is there. And Bill says to him, "Listen." Joe, you got to find a way, man. When you get to heaven, you just got to find a way to get word back to me on whether or not there's baseball, man. I got to know if there's baseball in heaven. And so Joe assures him he will, and Joe goes home to be with the Lord. And about a week later, you know, as these stories go, Joe appears to Bill in a dream, you know, and he tells him, "Oh Bill, you can 't believe how 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 amazing it is up here, man. It is just phenomenal and bill listen uh, you you are not going to be disappointed when you get to heaven and uh, and bill says joe that 's great, but tell me, listen, is there baseball in heaven, man? I got to know." And he says, well, I got good news and I got bad news. He says, the good news is, man, yeah, there's baseball in heaven. And all of our buddies, all the guys that, that, that have all passed before us, they're all up here, and we play all the time, and it's an amazing time. He says, wow, that's great. What's the bad news? He says, well, you're playing third base on Thursday. <laughs> Well, last week we took a closer look at the New Jerusalem and what we saw is that there is no bad news. No bad news at all. And if we were playing third base on Thursday, it would be phenomenal. We'd be thrilled. The New Jerusalem is the place that Jesus went to prepare for us. And, and it, it's this amazing thing Jesus promised in John's gospel, John chapter 14, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, uh, and, uh, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again to, to receive in myself that where I am there you may be also. So we've got this promise from Jesus, and the new Jerusalem is that place that, that Jesus went to uh, prepare for us, and it's a place of indescribable beauty. Just phenomenal what we see in heaven, and we, we really don't understand all of it, but we see that it's meticulously designed, that there's precious stones that are incorporated even into the foundation of the new Jerusalem, and what makes it so special, we looked at last week, is not just the place, but the people. The people is what makes the house a home. And we see there that the, the new Jerusalem is in fact synonymous with the bride of Christ. It is the bride of Christ where we're going to be dwelling together with and we're going to be radiating the glory, radiating the glory of God. And it's going to be all of us together. It's going to be amazing. And last week what we saw is that we are the precious stones with Jesus as the chief cornerstone that God incorporates into the building of the new Jerusalem. Peter put it this way. He said, "'Coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God, and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ.'" And so the amazing implication of this truth is what we we were digging into last week that our home in heaven is inextricably linked to the living Christ and you and I are a living breathing part of that eternally linked together with Jesus Christ and this home that is made a home by all of the people in it it's it's all of the people in it it's us linked together with Jesus and we saw this reflected in the fact that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on the 12 gates of the city and the names of the 12 apostles as well are inscribed on the 12 foundations of the city and and the use of these precious stones that Peter talks about are incorporated into the walls and the very foundation of the city. And it's this picture of both the Old Testament and New Testament saints built upon Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, shining like the sun, radiating his glory. Proverbs 4 8 says, The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. That's this beautiful picture of this new Jerusalem. And we're continuing today, and as we do, we're, we're going to continue with this theme that it's not the place, but it's the, the people that makes the new Jerusalem so special. And we turn our attention from the bride of Christ that we looked at last week, that the, the, the people of the bride of Christ that are in the Jer- new Jerusalem. But today we turn our, our attention from the bride of Christ to the bridegroom who's going to dwell together with us we'll pick it up in context in verse 21 Paul or John here he's describing the things that he's seen and he's described this how the city is laid out and he's described its wall and he's described Uh, you know the foundation and the jewels and so on and he says there in verse 21 the 12 gates were 12 pearls each individual gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass this external view of the city now we begin to go into this internal view of the city verse 21 and he says there his first observation of the interior of the city but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the temple are, uh, and the lamb are its temple the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it the lamb is its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Now this doesn't mean that there's going to be divided into various nations in heaven. In fact, it means exactly the opposite of that. That it's every nation, tribe and tongue coming together and and all of the kings of the earth who had their their earthly dominions, man, none of that stuff matters. We are now all assimilated uh, together. That's the picture here. And so the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Lord, anything that I was on earth, I give it all to you. Glory, honor, praise, you're worthy of that. Verse 25: <coughs> it, Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. Um, and, and, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it uh, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now the first thing to notice here is that there's no temple for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, what this, the significance of this is that every waking moment of heaven is going to be this unhindered, uninterrupted worship. This is the picture. He says, look, there's no temple there. There's like, it's not like there's some place where you're going to go and say, oh, I'm going to go to church today. No, it's all worship, the whole thing, which is really what our lives are supposed to be about, this worship of the Lord. But But everything here... It, it's all supposed to be worship where we have this unhindered, uninterrupted worship where, where all we do, and this is our hope in heaven, and all we do, it's illuminated by the glory of God in the light of his presence. Now, we don't know exactly what that's going to be. I mean, we, we can imagine like what it might be like, but we don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but we can get a taste of what it's going to be like by some of the experiences that we have here On Earth, I'll illustrate it this way. Do you you ever notice how, when you're in close relationship with God, everything seems to be—you just—it sort of has a peaceful clarity to it. Life just sort of makes sense. I remember years ago I went to my very first men's retreat. It was in 1993, and and I, I went there. I'm this baby Christian. And God met us there in, a, in an amazing way. There was 27 guys that went away on this men's retreat. And we go to the island of Catalina, and we're there. We're isolated. We're just seeking the Lord. We're, we're worshiping Him. We're in the Word. We're in prayer. And the, the Lord just poured His Holy Spirit out upon us. And I, I, was, I was baptized in the Spirit, man, just being there. And, and God just began to give to me and pour out upon me these gifts or, where you know he started giving me these words of knowledge things that I, that I was was saying these the you know prophesying if you will over over different guys that were there you know being just saying hey you know this is going on and and one of you is you know struggling with this it's a very specific thing and one of the guys is like yeah that's me and, and it's just this amazing stuff. I'm not a pastor or anything at this point. I'm just a, a guy that loves Jesus, and the Lord just meets me there. And I'm experiencing the Lord working in this, this intense connection with God like I've never experienced before. I led the first person in my life that I've ever led to Jesus Christ, to faith in Jesus Christ. It happened there at that retreat. And God just moving and working and just so connected. And, and you've had those experiences, I'm sure, where God moves and works in your life and, and it, it's just this intense connection with the Lord. And so I'm experiencing this and there was just this peaceful clarity to life. It was just, it just all seemed to 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 make sense. And so the whole experience, this is the point, the whole experience, it wasn't like, oh, you know, I've got my life compartmentalized. And so now over here, it's, you know, we're, we're having the meal and now we're gonna go, you know, snorkeling and do all the activities. Oh, and now it's some Jesus time and we'll do, no, the, the whole thing was Jesus time. And it was just this this supernatural connection with the Lord and this peaceful clarity, like just everything makes sense in my life. It was an amazing experience. And so then what happened is we come back from this retreat and, and I'm changed and the guys that are with me are changed and we're connected in these intimate ways that God has done this work. And then what happens? I mean, two weeks go by and I'm yelling at people on the 91 freeway and I'm just back to the, you know, the old Ted in so many different ways. And and what happened is is that, well, you know, I drifted. That's what happened. Jesus told a a parable um, in Mark's gospel. He was talking about a farmer who goes out to sow his seed. And as he's telling the parable, he's describing, you know, where he's throwing the seed. And he says that some of the seed fell among thorns. And, And here's what Jesus said. He said, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And so this is why the writer of Hebrews warns us in Hebrews 2.1. He says, we must listen very carefully to the truth that we've heard, or we may drift away from it. You've had those experiences. You go down to the beach, and you're in the water, and all of a sudden you come out, and somebody stole your towel, and you realize, no, they didn't steal my towel. I drifted. That's why nothing looks familiar, because I just drifted. And so this is why, we, man, we have to understand that this dynamic goes on. Here's the point. The only place that we are going to find peaceful clarity to our lives is in the presence of Jesus. That's the only place where we're going to find this peaceful clarity, the peace that we're seeking. The only place that we're going to find the light that we need to navigate this world, listen, the only place we're going to find that is in the presence of Jesus. And our ultimate hope, what we're reading about here in heaven, is that this will be our reality 24 7. When we go to heaven, when we go to the New Jerusalem, 24 7, it's going to be the light of Jesus, the hope of Christ, this where everything makes sense. And, and there's just, we don't have to, to, to compartmentalize or to, to go to these places or to, to recognize, oh my gosh, I've drifted. I've got to run back into Christian fellowship. No more. The entire thing is going to be that. And here is the applicable point for us today. Hey, God gives us these glimpses of what it's going to be like to inform what we should be like right now, what we, how we should be living right now. And, and yes, it's our ultimate hope that 24-7 we're going to be living lives of worship in the presence of Christ and have this transforming experience of His presence uh, like, like never before. But we don't have to wait till we get to heaven to experience that. And we don't have to wait until we get to a retreat uh, to, or to have the perfect conditions in our life to experience that. Turn really quickly to the left to Acts chapter 16. Go to Acts chapter 16. We'll be here for a couple of minutes. We're going to be picking up in verse 16. I'll set it up for you. Basically, Paul here's on his second missionary journey, and and he's just come to to Philippi. And and up until this point, Paul has endured several disappointments. For starters, listen, Paul didn't want to go to Philippi. That wasn't his desire. When he was on this trip, he had it in his heart, man, I want to go to Asia. But God told him no. No. He's like, hey, I'm, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm here to bring your word. I'm here to preach the gospel. I want to go to Asia. God's like, no. And so he's like, oh, man, well, okay, well, I guess I'll go to Bithynia. And God's like, no, you're not going there either. And so what happens is God finally leads him to Philippi. And, and, and even here, there's more disappointment that awaits him. Verse 16. Now, it happened, Paul says, as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And this girl followed Paul and, and us... And cried out, by the way, this is Dr. Luke, who's, who's writing uh, the the, uh, the message here. Uh, so the, so he says, that this, this girl followed Paul and us, crying out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and he came out to that very hour. This gal is possessed and this spirit uh, in this mocking, distracting way. Uh, and we could go off on a tangent there, but the, the enemy loves to distract. He loves to 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 just throw a wrench into the works of the Lord. And so that's what's going on here. And so Paul discerns it, and he commands this demon to come out of her. And it comes out that very hour, verse 19, but when her masters saw their hope of profit was gone, why? Because they made money off of this gal, and what she did, uh, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, and they brought them to the magistrates, and they said, (coughs) these men, being Jews... Exceedingly trouble our city and and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive uh, or to observe and then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. So Paul and his companions stripped naked, beaten with rods. And, and, and if that's not bad enough, verse 23, it says, When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Now, we don't know how many times they were beaten, but those who were uh, Roman citizens had rights and all, but non Roman citizens didn't. Now Paul is a Roman citizen, so was his companion. They were beaten illegally. Paul's gonna use that to his advantage. We're not gonna get into this, but basically by the time it's all over with, they're apologizing all over themselves to Paul and to his companion because he pulls the citizenship card, says, I'm a Roman citizen and you just beat me without, you know, any authority to do so and which was a cap I mean a, a high offense. Anyway. They, so the point being, though, that when they're beaten, they didn't—they didn't know that they're Roman citizens. So they, there's no restraint on them. If they weren't, they could have beaten them like to death. Like you know, they just there's no, It wasn't like oh, you just you, you get 20 lashes and no more. No, they just they just beat them until their arms got tired, basically. So they beat these guys, and then they throw them in prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he, speaking of the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now the stocks, they, they, their feet are fastened in them and, and so on, but they, it was basically a torture device. It was like they could move these anywhere they wanted to. So not only were they imprisoned, but they were imprisoned in a painful, agonizing way. Now, here's the point. The point is, is that these conditions were absolutely unbearable. They were not what what Paul would have hoped for, certainly not the optimal conditions to to serve God, let alone worship God. But notice now, verse 5, it says, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and they were singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosened. I'll explain what I'm about to say this way. This, this biblical story here, what's the dynamic that's going on? Jim Lovell in, in his book, Lost Moon, you may recall Jim Lovell, he was the, the commander of uh, Apollo 13. And in his book, Lost Moon, he, he recalculated he uh, recounts a story of a time when, uh, when a reporter asked him a question. And, and this is portrayed in the movie. They actually have the scene uh, that he wrote about in his book. So, so Jim Lovell is asked by this reporter, hey, have you ever had a time when you were scared? Listen to his words. He says, yeah, I remember this time. He says, I'm in a Banshee, a fighter, a fighter plane, at night in combat conditions. So there's no running lights on the carrier. It was the Shangri-La, the carrier, and, and we were in the Sea of Japan, and my radar had jammed, and my homing signal was gone because somebody in Japan was interfering with the frequency, and so it was leading me away from where I was supposed to be. There is a metaphor that you can take a walk with right there for our spiritual condition. Somebody on the, on the frequency messing with him, leading him away from where he's supposed to be. He said, and I'm looking down at a big black ocean and so I flip on my map light and then suddenly zap, everything shorts out right there in my cockpit. All my instruments are gone, my lights are gone and I can't even tell now what my altitude is and I know I'm running out of fuel and so I'm thinking about ditching in the ocean. Now this is just a story, but put yourself in his shoes right now. That's a pretty frightening thing. And he's overwhelmed and so he says, and I look down there and then there in the darkness, there's this green trail. It's like a long carpet that just laid out right beneath me. And it was the algae, right? It was the, that phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big ship. And it was leading me home. He said, you know, if my cockpit lights hadn't shorted out, there's no way I'd have ever been able to see that light. So you never know what events are going to transpire to lead you home. Here's the point. See, in heaven, we're going to be home with the Lord. In in heaven, as we read this, we're going to be illuminated by the glory of God in the light of his presence. This is what we are going to experience in heaven. And every waking moment that we have, this is going to be the worship in his presence. But listen, in the meantime, here on earth, we go through situations where our map light shorts out. We go through these situations where, you know, the circumstances aren't as we would have hoped, as we would have expected, and now we're in a situation where, metaphorically speaking, it's midnight, and all seems lost. We're saying this morning, it is well with my soul. Through it all, my eyes are on you. What was it for Paul to be able to worship in this black situation, feet in the stocks, he's been beaten, it's midnight, and you know, metaphorically speaking, man, we go through those desperate hours of the soul where it's black, and literally, midnight, middle of the night is the worst. And, And it's just all right there, and you're worrying and you're overwhelmed. And the circumstances aren't going as we'd hoped or expected. Listen, what happens is, we need only look in faith to the light of Christ that's leading us home. That's the point. That's the point. We have this to hope for in heaven. Jesus is light 24-7. But here on this earth, listen, we can still be guided by the light of Christ. And sometimes, just as, as Jim Lovell points out in his story, hey, God turns off all the lights so that, you can, so that you have to look to him. And it's the only way that you can see him for what's, what's going on there. The psalmist said this, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And and one more thing I would just quickly add on that. Listen, people are watching. People are watching. Look here in, in Acts 16 that, 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 that Paul is going through this. He's in the stocks. Silas there with him. And what do they do? They begin worshiping the Lord. The, the last thing you probably ever heard coming from this inner prison was men worshiping the Lord, just singing praise to God. Their circumstances no way warranted that. They were looking to the light of the Lord. And so they didn't need to have the the light of their circumstances going well. They said, you know what? It is well with my soul, worshiping the Lord. And everybody looking upon hearing it, man, what a great, powerful witness. There's people in your life watching you go through your circumstances through your situations. They're hearing you talk about what your faith is and whether or not, you know, you, you know you're going to navigate or whatever. And then you go into some situation and they say, I wonder how they're going to handle that. I wonder how they're going to behave in that situation. Incredible things. Well, we continue now, chapter 22, Revelation Verse 1, and he, John speaking about this angel giving him the grand tour of heaven, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of of the nations, and you're like, wait a minute, no more sickness, no more disease, this is heaven, what, what, what healing is needed? It, it's, it, the word really is more about, it, it's more of a therapeutic thing, kind of a, it's just for continued health, not to cure something that's not well, and so the, that's the idea here, is that, that the, you know, the, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be, verse 3, no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Think Andy in Toy Story. He wrote his name on what he owned. And this is the idea here God, your, you know, his name's on your forehead, man. Uh, you belong to him. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. And so listen, here's what we see here. We see the tree of life and it's fed by this river of life and its river of life is throwing, is flowing from God's throne. And and the way that this is written in the Greek, it's, it, it's not merely a river that has life. No, the, the implication of the way that this is written in the original language is that it has a quality of life. Hey, and the river is life. That's the idea. It's not just, it, it, it's not just that it has, you know, the, the quality of life. No, yeah, it's got the quality of life, but the point is the river is life. And and what comes to my mind clearly here is Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and, light, day and night. Listen, here's the, the get. He shall be... Who the the guy that doesn't sit in the path of, of, of sinners, standing or sitting in the seat of the scornful, or standing in the path of sinners? No, not that not that guy. But the guy who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and life. Listen, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now, it's important for us to take note here. In verse 1 of Revelation 22, that this life flows from the throne of God. The text makes that very clear, and it's very important that we just don't skip over that. It flows from the throne of God. And this is depicting the truth that, listen, the source of life emanates from God himself. But not only that, listen, it's the fact that it emanates from God's throne. From God's throne. This is highly significant, and you can't miss this. What does the throne of God represent? When we talk about God's throne, what does it represent? It represents power. It represents dominion. It represents rule. What what is it that has power over your life? What is it that has dominion over your life? What is it that rules you? Are you the captain of your ship or is the Lord the captain of your ship? And so the, the emphasis here is this life comes from the rule of God. That's the idea. We access this life when we yield to his law, when we live under his authority. That's the picture here. What comes to my mind is Jesus when he encountered the centurion in Matthew's gospel. In fact, let's turn there real quickly. Matthew chapter eight, you'll turn to the left. Go with me, humor me, turn there. Matthew chapter eight. Beginning in verse 5, it says, Matthew 8, verse 5, Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered, and he said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof But only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled. That's significant. How many times do we see of Jesus marveling? He marvels at this. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you, that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. See, here's the thing. Jesus marvels at this man's faith. And and, and why? why is it? Because he understood authority. That's why. Jesus is saying, here this guy, he gets it, and his faith is all wrapped up in my authority. He says, look, I get authority. I'm a soldier. I understand, you know, being under being under somebody's authority. And I'm going to submit myself to your authority. I'm going to say, look, you don't you, you just have to give the word because you have all authority. Now Jesus in explaining this and in marveling at this guy's authority, he points out that that he says. Uh there, there, he says in verse 11, there's going to be many who come from the east and west and they sit down with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. We read about this in our text in Revelation 21 and 22 about how the nations come, the kings come, they all come to glory, to worship the Lord. Jesus is talking about that, but He says, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer, outer darkness. They'll be weeping and they'll be gnashing of teeth. What's Jesus talking about? What He's talking about is those people who have religion but they don't have a submitted relationship to the Lord. That's what he's talking about. He says there's going to be many people who have this form of religion, but they don't get authority because they're the captain of their own ship. They think that they can save themselves. They think that they can keep the law and be right with God, and they are not yielded to God's authority. That's the picture. That's the idea. See, our lives are a reflection of what we bow our knee to and whose authority we're under. See, the, 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 the authority that you live your life in is the authority that you bow your knee to. That's the idea here. True life is only found in yielding to God's authority. This is the picture that we have in the New Jerusalem that this river of life, not a quality of life, but life itself, where does it flow from flows from the throne of God it flows from his authority your life is only true life when it's yielded to God's authority that's the idea no other river is going to satisfy and quench the thirst that you have Jesus proved that to the woman at the well there she is and he meets her and he's talking to her and he's and and hey you know do you do you want living water she's like yeah I'll take that but well, go get your husband. I have no husband. And Jesus, just going to the guts, to the bullseye of what this woman's problem was, he says, you said, you've spoken truly that you have no husband. fact is, you've had five husbands, and the dude you're shacking up with now, he ain't your husband. And she's like, I perceive that you are a prophet. You think? Yeah, because Jesus is saying to her, look, you've tried to quench this thirst in your life from a bunch of different sources, and ain't nothing quenching your thirst. The only thing that can quench your thirst, Jesus would tell this woman, is me. Faith in me. And so the picture here is that having yielded to God's authority, because what is it that we're looking at? When I say the picture here, I'm talking about in our text here in Revelation 22, this river of life. Who's there? Those that have yielded to the authority of God. Those that are partaking of the river of life. Why? Because it's flowing from his throne and they've bowed down to his throne. And so so the, the picture that we have is having yielded to God's authority... What, what do we find? We find rest in Him. We find our light in Him. We find our ultimate satisfaction in Him. The ultimate satisfying of our thirst in Him. We find our ultimate purpose in life. It talks to us here about how we're going to serve Him continually. You know, God's created you. You need to. You know, people want to have a purpose, men. You know, it goes to the foundational thing of what do you do. What do you do with your life, it's men, women? I'm, 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 you know, I'm a, I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm this. I'm that. Whatever it is that you do, the the, the satisfaction, the purpose in your life is going to be fulfilled in yielding to God's authority. And here's our takeaway as I draw it to a close. It all comes down to this. Listen, our ultimate hope and our ultimate future. Is this yielding to God's authority and experiencing what He has for us? But it starts here on earth. It starts here on earth. Yes, this is the hope. Yes, this is what we will have. But listen, it starts when we walk in the light of His presence, regardless of our circumstances. It starts when when we walk in obedience to the Lord, living a life of obedience that is trusting that life comes when I surrender to him, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, listen, here's what he shall be like, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth the fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper, so it comes down to this. Today, here, right now, yes, the hope of walking in his light is coming. Yes, the hope of partaking of the river of life is coming, but it starts here. It starts here, it starts now. And so, are you walking in God's light? Going through those times, those trials, those dark midnights of the soul, are you looking to the light of Christ? Are you walking in that light? Are you partaking of the river of life that is only found at the throne of God by implication Him ruling, Him reigning, you yielding, or are you the captain of your own ship? Is your life not typified by yielding to God's word, to the obedience of the one who sits on the throne? Who's on the throne of your life? That's the question.